The Entrepreneur Studio is powered by Heartland. Now business owners can finally get one solution for everything to do with point of sale, payments, and payroll. Get tools that easily grow with you, plus a local partner who can help make everyday work better. That's why over 750,000 customers, from family-owned shops to Fortune 500s, all rely on Heartland. See the show notes of this episode or visit heartland.us to learn more. In reality, real estate developers, all we do is we create covers to books. But what we are best at is picking good storytellers. And those are our tenants, right? And our tenants become the storytellers that affect change in communities. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. This is Season 2, Episode 10. I'm your host, Chris Allen, and today we are speaking with Oklahoma City commercial real estate developer and co-founder of The Pivot Project, Jonathan Dodson. Jonathan Dodson left his job as a corporate banker and followed his passion to revitalize Oklahoma City through urban infill and adaptive reuse of commercial property. His development group, Pivot, is committed to creating ethical community development that is the product of public interest and addresses a community need. Today, Jonathan shares his story about how he felt a moral imperative to invest in underserved communities and the challenges he faced in establishing what became an internationally recognized economic revolution. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. We're here to help you run and grow a better business. Jonathan Dodson, thanks for joining us on the Entrepreneur Studio. Glad to have you, man. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the coolest parts about what we get to do here is, you know, we don't talk about Oklahoma City too, too much on the studio because, I mean, obviously our audience is a little bit broader, right? But one of the things that I think is a really compelling story is, you know, like from the building where we shoot every single one of these episodes, it's literally like a block away is the, you know, the site of the Oklahoma City bombing and you know, we had Amy Downs on the show to talk about really, a, I'd say a personal experience that she had being in the bombing, surviving and her story of recovery all the way to becoming the CEO of a local credit union. And um, I think that those stories are really important. And one of the other things that I think is really important is uh, a lot of the work that you do centers around the local communities and things like that and real estate and development and thinking about how, how cities and communities operate. And one of the things that is really, I'd say hard on a city like Oklahoma City is right, like in the 80s, you had the oil crisis that went down, a lot of talent really left OKC. And that's something you talk about a lot that we'll get into. And that was in the 80s. And then in the mid 90s, you had the Oklahoma City bombing. And since then, Oklahoma City has really had a chance to grow. And there was a lot of money that really came in. And so the thing that I find really interesting is how you found your way into development into real estate development. And it's like, you became, you went from banker to developer. And I think it'd be really, really helpful just to hear how you think about how Oklahoma City has changed and how you've seen the opportunity and just how, how the spark of you getting in development happened. Great commentary too, just on our city. You know, you think about Oklahoma City and Oklahoma in general, and really half of our state was in Mexico. <laughs> Obviously, the Native Americans, first Americans were yeah. here first, right? Mm-hmm. And then when you have, uh, you know, the abolition of slavery, a lot of uh, the African Americans from the South moved here. And so it was really kind of like a Wild West that was for anyone. And somewhere along the way, we kind of lost that. We mm-hmm. forgot that this was a place that was for everyone. 
And uh, so then you throw in, you know, even in the 60s, we had a guy named I.M. Pei who came in and blew up about 200 buildings downtown because he felt like the way you compete with the suburbs is to uh, be the suburbs. And so we were going to build a giant super mall. But then we had the oil crisis and we had the crash and nothing got rebuilt. And so you fast forward to the 90s and this is post bombing. And one of our council members said downtown's dead and we're the ones who killed it. And so there's this old uh, saint who said that even if your mother's a whore, you love her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like you can speak bad about, I can speak bad about my mom, but don't you dare speak bad about my mom. Uh-huh. And so Oklahoma City has all these flaws and all of these problems that I think if you live here, you see that can be really aggravating. But I would say for me and for many folks who have kind of come out of all of the heartache and heartbreak that has occurred, yeah. there's a sense of this is our mother and mm-hmm. we love her. And even if she's flawed, we're gonna do what we can. And we wanna make it a place that is for eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make that happen. I mean, that's so true. And it, it's, a, it's a big deal to have somebody stick around, right? And, yeah. and see through that, right? So, I mean, talk to us about how you went from you know, banker to <laughs> yeah, what you're I, doing I this today. Great, I wish I could show you guys. I got a great photo of, they call it Banker John. It's a Banker John photo, but uh, very clean cut. And really the, the great thing that banking did, so when my wife and I moved to Oklahoma City in 03, Oklahoma City was terrible. I mean, it, like, and that is, it's for a, for a young family, it's not the place you want to be. Everyone wanted to get to Tulsa. You wanted to get to Dallas. You wanted mm-hmm. to get to some other city. And so we were like, this is a stopping place. And uh, quickly we fell in love with it. Quickly we started seeing all of these really creative folks doing things that just quite hadn't landed yet or were in the process of landing. And they were able to stand on the shoulders of people who had been doing this stuff even when it wasn't the popular thing to do, right? And so I got into banking and when I got the loan officer job, I I like journaled that night. I was like, dear God, let my job have meaning. Mm. And uh, I ended up reading this lady. Uh, she was a Southern mystery writer. And she said, we're most human when we create order out of chaos. And so the idea that if anybody can actually create order out of chaos, you can find meaning in that. And so whether that's uh, a blue collar job or a white collar job, if you're actually creating order, then you're bringing meaning to the world and you're finding your fulfillment. And so I started trying to do that in lending. I started finding all of these folks who are trying to come into the urban core and do projects. And so I just started lending them money. And we had, you know, the kind of the bubble in uh, seven and eight, the housing crisis that mm-hmm. happened. What I found was all of the things that I was doing in the urban core remained solid. Uh, it was the stuff on the periphery, the suburbs, yeah, the the, the sprawl that that were that was uh, damaged. And so I was like, man, if I ever got into real estate, I would do this, right? And so I walked in and I told my wife, I was like, five years from now, I'm getting into, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna quit my job, and I'm gonna get into real estate. And she was like, all right, whatever. And uh, <laughs> five weeks. Does she does she know you as a dreamer or does she? she I actually, I think she was just like, yeah, we'll see yeah, if this yeah. happens, you know. Uh, She's and like, yeah, okay. Yeah, five Got weeks it. later, my my boss walks in and tells my assistant in front of me that if she wants to keep her job, she needs to have sex with him. Oh, jeez. And uh, I'm sitting in there, and I'm sitting in the room adjacent, and so. So you hear this? Yeah, I hear it, and so we go through the whole. You know, one is it's not necessarily my story to tell because it's her story. Yeah. In some ways, though, I was impacted, though to a, a much lesser degree. So I, I don't want to elevate my, tr- you know, any trauma that I had. But essentially, what happened was was I I told the CEO the CEO gave my assistant like four, four months to find a new job, didn't fire the president and gave him like a year 
with full benefits to figure out what he wanted to do and still remain with the bank. Oh, wow. And so for me, that was like the first time that I had kind of been put in a situation where I was like, I guess I got to quit. And so I quit, I sold my car, liquidated everything, all of our savings. And your wife's like, this happened faster than I thought. (laughs) This is not five years. And so really started trying to figure out what to do, right? And so I officed at a coffee shop. My business card had the coffee shop on it and I received checks. They would give them to the barista and the barista would hold them and hand them to me when I got there. And so over the next two years, I started basically figuring out how to uh, use the skills that I had Mm -hmm. to work and get my way into the real estate world. And it was in uh, 2014 that one of my buddies he got an old, it was an old movie theater, which was an, then an old porn theater and was vacant. He got that under contract and he said, hey, what if we became equal partners and we tackled it together? And so we, that was the birth of Pivot. And mm-hmm. so uh, really actually got me going into real estate. And I didn't know anything about it, but I knew that I could figure out how to raise money. I figured we could find debt. And um, I really wanted to do something that was tangible. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that one of the really interesting parts is about about how we met, right? You you guys have um, Pony Boy, right? You've got the Tower Theater right there. We, I mean, who's been a Heartland customer for forever, right? Right. right. And so, just hearing, uh, I think I was at a concert and uh, I talked to you there, and you were talking about. I mean, you were all hyped about how you know, you were bringing music and culture, you know, back into really into the urban area. So, like, talk about how how did you sort of you know, going from just being interested in real estate and then getting this interesting opportunity of like, you know, the theater, right? How did that become like, ah, I'm going to affect culture with what I do in the community? Yeah. So, I mean, in reality, developers, real estate developers, all we do is we create covers to books. And so everyone is willing to go pick up a book if it looks interesting. But what we are best at is picking, I think, or I hope, good storytellers. And those are our tenants, right? And our, our tenants become the storytellers that affect change in communities. And so very rarely does a developer actually do anything outside of curate, right? And so that's important. It's not diminishing our job. But um, what makes a great city is the storytellers. It's the artists, it's the breweries, it's the music venues, it's the restaurants, it's the offices that are like thinking about things differently. It's all of those things, right? And so while I was officing at this coffee shop named Elemental, which is also, it may be visible from here. What I started finding was I, when I was in lending, I was around a very specific demographic and it was mm-hmm. essentially 50 to 70 year old men who had been very successful in what yeah. they do. And so uh, I moved from that to being in a coffee shop where really it's Oklahoma City's, all of the different, what I would say is the kaleidoscope of what makes Oklahoma City beautiful in a coffee shop. Mm -hmm. And I got to be a part of that on a daily basis. And so uh, it started shaping the way that I saw a city could be versus a sit way that I saw the city whenever I was, you know, driving up to the to the bank in Edmond and, you know, lending money and doing that. So really relationships, I mean, it's a long-winded way to say that I started meeting people differently than me and I realized that wisdom is not knowledge, but wisdom is actually knowledge married to relationships. Mm-hmm. So I'm always cool if people have convictions. I want to have convictions but I want that to be held in tension with loving people. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to love someone if all you have is some kind of hyperbole or some like uh, caricature of what that person is like. Mm. And so me being able to be in the room with people who I'd never been around was like, oh, this is actually like, 
they see things that I've never seen in the world. And I wanna see the world better. And I want, and I wanna make buildings that can bring them in and we don't lose them, right, to other cities. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably one of the fundamental pieces to that. Well, a big transformation for you was going from lending someone else's money, yeah, right, to needing to get into real estate, which requires, I'd say, some money, yes. right? So, talk to us about some of the best kept secrets of <laughs> how you how yeah. you arrived at, well, at funding. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I'll give one really funny story, but you know, the first is to say that we didn't come from money. Me and my two business partners, Ben Sellers and David Wanzer, and so really what we would do is we just go find really complicated buildings and figure out what credits were out there. How could we, you know, and we did all sorts of things, all legal, but you know, to, to get into the game. And, uh, I'm so grateful that we were able to do some of the first projects, stone cloud brewery and main street arcade building, a lot of these buildings that were historic rehab. So one of the most tenuous situations that we had was we had a, we had a music, um, venue or operating group and they had signed a 20 year lease on the Tower Theater and uh, they defaulted within the first 12 months of um, operations. And they were supposed to put a million dollars of cash into the building to build out the theater. And so they they, they weren't gonna do it. And they were basically like, you can see us in court. And so I was at Elemental and a buddy of mine came up and he said, hey, I think I can actually operate it. I think I've got you. And so I was like, well, you know, let's meet. And so he and another friend, uh, Steven Tyler and Chad Whitehead, they pulled me aside and they had this business plan. And I was like, I didn't know anything about the music operation business. I mean, frankly, they just had vision and like massive amount of guts. And they were like, this is what we're gonna do, but we need to raise like a million dollars in you know 120 days we needed it because the bank was gonna you know put us in default so we got citizens bank of edmund to work with us but they're like you got to go find three hundred fifty thousand dollars. so we got introduced to a lender and the lender said all right i like you meet me at the fourth floor of this building at four o'clock on monday afternoon and so me ben and dave are like cool you're like it's probably not fight yeah exactly (laughs) yeah yeah. and what's funny is the person who developed so he said he said, by the way, uh, do you play ping pong? And I'm like, no, I'm a terrible, p- I wish I did. I mean, I, I can okay. play, but like- So I'm, was this before or after he offered the meeting? Uh, he, he, it was after the meeting. Was, okay. So okay. he calls me, he's like, do you, do you play? And I'm like, ah, you know, like not good. He's like, find someone who's good. So the guy who actually developed the building we're in um, was a friend of mine and he's played so much ping pong that he had a tennis elbow at one point. Um, and so I call him, I'm like, dude, I need you. I don't know what this is for. You got to show up. He's like, I got you covered. That's like that Ben Affleck <laughs> meme that goes around. Where he's like, oh, we're going to get in my car. I can't ask, tell you what it's going to be about. <laughs> he's just yes. like, okay, there's a big ping pong match. I know you're pretty good, but yeah. like, you got to yeah. come with you, me. I'm not going to tell you what it's about. You just got to go. So, uh, so an hour before he's supposed to come, he calls me. He's like, man, I can't make it. I'm sorry, but I got a friend who's, he's not as good as me, but he's almost as good. And at this point I'm like, man, so we all show up. We, we go up the elevator to this fourth floor. This fourth floor is a vent space. The elevator opens. We hear a toilet flush in the other room. <laughs> and a guy walks out in gym shorts. And he looks at our, tenant, or our uh, ping pong player and he goes, oh shit. What I didn't know is they knew each other and they just played each other in a ping pong tournament. No way. So we still don't even know what's at, at you know. At, You're like, uh, I don't know yeah, what the stakes yes, are. But I don't know why is, we're they, doing they, this. And they know each other. I mean, I was like, I didn't even know there's ping pong tournaments, right? So come to find out this banker who I will preface to say he is no longer in banking. He did own the bank, but he is no longer in banking. Um, he bas- basically he said, you need $350,000. 
we're going to play. Uh, if you lose, you get $275,000 and you got to pay more in interest. If you win, you get the full amount. Now at this point we had borrowed everything we had. Like I, I had given, I mean, we had, we had, we literally had leverage to the hill and, and no money in the account. Like I mean, personally, like everything, it was like, we were, we were broke. So telling me I needed $75,000 at this point in my career was like telling me I needed a million, right? It's like, yeah. I don't, I don't have it. So cue the tennis or the, the ping pong game starts and, and we're watching like a $75,000 ping pong game that the whole, like, I feel like my whole world is dependent upon. And so like, I'm sweating, like I've sweat through all my stuff and it goes- Are you still, or are you pacing at this Oh point? no, I'm just sweating. <laughs> I, like I don't, I, I so um, anyways, to wrap the story up, we lose match point, fifth set, it's over. And I'm like, we're done. Like Pivot has had a very short run and he's, the banker starts laughing and he's like, well, here's what we'll do. We'll give you a little bit more money, not all of it, but you're gonna pay another interest rate increase. Oh, geez. And so we played again and our guy smoked them, three straight sets, destroyed them. So we got almost all the money we needed. We paid a lot more money than we should have. And it was all because of a ping pong game. And so I look back at that and one, probably not legal, probably not okay but we needed the money yeah. and uh, we got it. And so that was really the inception of Tower, getting the money that we needed to put on. It was really important for us and, and really for Chad and Steven to have a venue that acoustically sounded great, that made people feel welcome. And that was uh, a place that Oklahoma City could be proud of. And they, they accomplished that. And so there was a lot of stress along the way, but, but it happened. Well, I couldn't tell the difference when you first said that it was like a Russian mob movie or like, <laughs> you know, a Ben Stiller, yeah, you yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Comedic uh, now, not at the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, uh, that's really interesting. So tell us a little bit about the Pivot Project. Now that you've got traction, there's things that you guys are doing. Talk about some of the, the construct of the business and how you guys operate today. Yeah, so we're a full-scale uh, development company. And so a lot of times when people say re real estate development, what does that mean? They're like, you must be the one to, to, to build it. And I'm like, no, that's the general contractor. I'm like, well, you design it. And I see architect. And I'm like, well, you're the ones who are like putting all the money. And I'm like, well, not really. We get investors, right? And so trying to understand what we do is really just going in and we quarterback and push projects. We find an asset that we like. We say, we think it could be this. We go put together the, the, you know, the overall financial structure for that. And so it needs, means we need to have good capital partners. We need to have good tenants. And so I think a couple things to think about in terms of what's happened in the past versus what's happened now is in the 50s and 60s, we had integration of school. We had uh, at first white flight, but then it, it led to middle-class flight. So it was really anyone who was middle-class knew they needed to get out of the urban core. And so all of these homes got built out in the suburbs and there was no retail out there. Mm -hmm. There was no gas stations, there was no, nothing, right? And so people started putting gas stations in and every two miles there'd be a gas station with a nail salon and a liquor store and two miles down. And so all of the financial industry started saying, how do we think about this differently? How do we, how do we know this one's better than that one? And they said, well, if you, have more, if you have more locations, then you're stronger. So like Little Caesars is better than Empire Slice or your local pizza shop, right? That's what, that's what the bank said. That's, that's what, what they think, yeah. the appraisers said. And so really what happened was this ubiquitous redevelopment of areas that was driven by money. And, and, and it's not to, like, it's not, that's not critical or anything. It's just the way that it was. And so if I build a Starbucks in, in any kind of suburban setting, the moment I get a Starbucks lease and I get them open, that is the most expensive that real estate will be because it's based upon the uh, 
term of the lease. Mm -hmm. It's not based on how much is the asset worth. Yeah. It's based on you got ten years left. So if you wait till sell for seven years, you've got a less you know valuable asset. So what happened was is in the suburbs, everyone had to build, fill, and flip. And then you had to re-put that money into a new system. And so the whole, the whole system was based upon recreating the same thing over and over again. To, so to sell buildings that, were, that had tenants and yes. that were, had yes. really well-curated yes. tenants. So yeah, the idea was that you get, you get your strong, your anchor tenants, your national credit tenants, you get them to sign a lease and then you sell it. But you now have this money that you gotta put back to work. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a cycle that forces itself. So people are like, well, why does there continue to be sprawl? Well, the whole economic system is based on that, right? So when there is a great book, it's called uh, The Inversion of Wealth or the, the Great Inversion of Wealth in the Future of the American City. And what it said was basically like we're following the European cities. We're just 100, 150 years late to the table. Mm -hmm. And so as wealth is starting to come back into the core, what happened was is there's all these neighborhoods that exist, but an artist or a retailer would come in and drop something that's cool. And then someone would come in next to them and that's cool, right? And so then someone goes, well, I wanna live next to that because I wanna walk to that. And so they go buy this home that was really undervalued, right? And they fix it up and now they're close to all this stuff. And so whereas housing led the way in the 60s, retail was leading the way in, in the 2000s. And so it really creates a complicated system for banks and appraisers and the financial markets because they're looking at for 50 years, our whole economic system has been based this way. Yeah. And now you're coming in and you're flipping it on its head with like, there's no comps, there's all this stuff that doesn't make sense. You got yeah. a tenant who only has one location and you think this is better than, you know, a Little Caesars. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're, they're going through all these questions and they can't figure it out. And so that's what has, like, we walked into from a development standpoint. So at our core, we have said we're going to build to hold. We, we, we want to chase asset appreciation. So we want the buildings we redevelop to be worth more in the future than they are today. And we're going to chase cash flow. And we're going to do it. And, you know, our, our values fit into that where it's we want to do it with excellence. Mm -hmm. We want to be resilient, but we also want to be joyous disruptors. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that means that we're hopefully pulling we're joyous disruption. Typically, when we see things that are broken, we either use paternalism. So we're like, they're not smart enough to see it. So I'm mm -hmm. going to come in and help them or we're gonna use shame and guilt. Yeah. And we're gonna say, you're such an idiot. Like, why don't you see it? And we've said, well, we're gonna to try to be passionate about what we're doing. And if you wanna come be a part of our story, we would love it. Cause we're actually joining someone else's story. This isn't like our story. This is, we're a part of someone else's story. And so let's just go on and go do it. Yeah. And so that fits into real estate. It impacts where we develop, how we develop, who we develop with, and how we think about uh, the communities that we're impacting. That is amazing. It was interesting that you said Empire Slice because we had Rachel Cope on. Oh, cool. On, yeah, yeah. She's, she's a rock star. She's awesome. Literally like a rock star entrepreneur in hospitality. And, you know, there are these unique ways, like even the way that she described getting into her first building to do Empire Slice was that it was like a competition that the developer had put on to sort of like, hey, what should we do here? And that sounded to me a little bit of like involving the community a little bit yeah, and yeah. what shows up, yeah. right? And I was like, that wasn't you guys, was it? No, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. <laughs> You're like, we do cooler yeah. stuff. Than no, that. no, Steve's incredible. So yeah. yeah, what's interesting is once you redevelop an area, and this is the tension that we see today, right? With gentrification and it's kind of a buzzword. Gentrification be good and can be bad. Yeah. If gentrification displaces people, it becomes problematic. And in retail districts, what happens is as a developer, I'm inclined, I, I say the gravitational pull, like pull of money 
is comfort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the gravitational pull of development is to get as much money so I can have as much comfort as possible. And so the way you do that is you develop out little areas and so you get an artist to come in and you say, hey, just pay me five bucks a month. But by the time you've redeveloped your whole district, the in person is paying you 30 bucks a month. And the person who started paying you five is the artist. You're like, dude, I could like make six times the money I'm making. Yep. So I think you need to pay me six times. The artist is like, my whole economic system is not based upon me like paying rent six times of this, right? So we kick them out and we bring someone else in. And so it's really hard for developers in general is to have restraint, not in restraint in vision, but restraint in saying, how do we actually have a longer term view other than just making money? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's hard to do. And there's some people who just don't even think about it, right? That's not even, mm-hmm. they're like, yeah, the goal is to make as much money as possible. Yeah, well, they, yeah, the only yeah, value yeah. is yeah. money, yeah, right? Exactly. When that artist created value by saying yes, yes, and was an anchor, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily like an anchor tenant, but it was like the one of the people that gave you sort of initial traction to be able to grow. And so it's like, well, I only value the money, so I'm gonna come back to them right. and say, you need to do this thing instead of valuing the position and the role they played to get them to the $30. Absolutely, and when we view people, like if wealth leads to comfort, the problem with comfort is it becomes, they build walls, right? And as they build walls, what's, what that does is it prevents us from, from experiencing pain, which we all are like pain avoiding, right? Yeah. But it also, forces us or, or makes us miss out on experiencing joy because joy and suffering are typically bedfellows. They're right next to each other. And, um, you know, this has become, I, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, why is it that I tend to think about the world that way? And it's cause it's true for me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'd rather, I'd rather like, you know, how do I prevent myself from actually having to suffer? But, you know, if you talk to an opioid addict, it's not be, like where they're at now, they don't feel anything but they don't feel any joy, right? And that's yeah. the emptiness that's there. And so that's the, that's the dilemma of wealth. Wealth is not a bad thing, but when we let wealth or money be the, dic- it dictates how we make decisions within development, mm-hmm. I think we miss out on this whole opportunity to see the world really, mm-hmm. really different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really erodes something. Yeah, it, absolutely. And that, you, you see that all the time in business. And so you've got this model flipping thing that's going on where, you know, when there are no comps, bankers go crazy. They're like, I don't know how to value this. Therefore, I'm not going to loan anything against it or whatever and can't see the vision. So talk about how you raise funds if sometimes you got to go adjacent to bankers. What are some of the things that you guys have had to do to really sort of raise funds for people to catch a vision? Because it sounds a hell of a lot to me like SaaS companies. It's like, hey, I've got this yeah. really great yeah. software. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And you got to yeah. sell the vision yeah. to investors because yeah. banks are like, eh, no, that's not, not interested. Yeah. But real estate is their game. And, and, we, and, and I never realized how important bankers were to redevelopment that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we always, like, how we started, we had to start, we started by being, we had to go find complicated buildings. And so what we used was we used historic tax credits. We used TIF from the cities. We used all these layers that allowed the bank to get to a place where it could handle it. I think where we hit our wall, and you know, I don't know at what point we wanna talk about some of our work on the east side, but that's where, when we went to the east side, which is our historic African-American and black community, mm-hmm. that's where things got vastly different. It was different from, I mean, we bought the Tower Theater I didn't have any money to put into the project. We were using tax credits. We didn't have any tenants when we bought it. Me, Ben, and David had no money, and we got a bank to say yes. Wow. And so part of that was reputation. You know, and we don't we take for granted within, I would say, the white community, how much 
favor were given mm -hmm. just by being in the community and doing stuff mm -hmm. and being a banker provided me credibility that I didn't deserve. Yeah. And so we got a head start that we didn't deserve, but we've used. And there's a lot of people who don't get that. Yeah. And so if we couldn't have borrowed on the Tower Theater, Pivot doesn't exist. Wow. So tell us about the Eastside Project. Talk about how that changed things for you. Yeah, so I was still at Elemental. Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma had a race incident where a college student was singing um, on a bus about lynching a black man, got caught on camera. They do this race reconciliation conference. One of the people stands up behind me and says, if you know what it's like to be in my shoes, when's the last time you had someone like me over to house your house for dinner? Mm. And so that night I went home and I journaled and I don't typically journal at night, but I did that night and it was really pathetic. And I've shared this before, but I, I just said, dear God, let me find a black friend. Mm. I didn't have any black friends. I, my whole world was excluded from really any demographic other than white men was really like what wow. it could have been. And so over the next couple of years, I started just meeting folks and being intentional and you know, to, to be a, uh, a black person and then to have to walk alongside. So just the burden that that entails in terms of racial, you know, inequity, disinvestment, but then you become friends with someone and then they're wanting to walk through, like they've got to become aware of the situation and what does it mean to have white privilege? And then what does it mean to actually not become paternalistic about it and fix the problem? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to just be a friend and to walk alongside? Like I had friends who were just willing to do that for me. And so um, it is not fair for them, but they did it. Um, and they extended grace to me in that way. And so the natural overflow at some point, the city came to us and said, we would like you to develop on the east side no one's done any new development in 35 years. Would you guys take a chance? And so the city came. The city, you. yeah. And so what we realized was um, we had just seen some people try to do development over there and they did it wrong. And so, really quickly, we just said, we're going to have six principles that guide how we do this. The first is to say that anyone who has access to power and money usually thinks they're a blessing to the community they're going into. But that's one, fundamentally wrong. It's also paternalistic. And so what we said is if, if we leverage that, we believe that what makes great humans is community. It's overcoming obstacles. It's sticking together. It's doing things that people said couldn't be done. And that exists in abundance in the black community. And so we said, hey, if we leverage the things that we have, would you just let us be a part of your community? Mm -hmm. So one was flipping the power wealth dynamic on its side. The second was to say, typically when we decide we want to do something good, as long as we can stay in control, then we're comfortable with it. And so we said, that's also problematic. And so we called Sandino, who was a friend of mine and said, hey, would you become the lead for us on this? So you get to speak on behalf of the project, you get uh, authority over the project, you become an equity member in the project, you get development fees. And this becomes like, we, we will submit to you if you feel like things are going in the wrong direction. The third thing we did was we said, we're gonna take money that we get from the city and we're gonna pass it on to our tenants instead of protecting the investors. So we reduced rent by 30%. We gave six times the amount of build out to build out the spaces. The fourth thing we did was we said, like, and we talked about this earlier, gentrification that leads to displacement is really problematic. And so we don't know what we're gonna be like in 10 years. And so what we said is instead of uh, hoping that we still have great values and all of these things, we're actually just gonna roll our tenants in as owners in the space. So if they signed a lease, they became a 15% owner in their space. So now we were flipping the whole tenant landlord into now they're our partners mm -hmm. and we're gonna figure out how to do this together. 
And then, then what we did was we said, we're gonna pay the community to tenant the buildings. And so instead of us bringing in a broker or us trying to tenant the spaces, we said, if you, if you know someone within your community that wants to come here and they sign a lease, we'll pay you the brokerage commission for it. Wow. And so we, you know, we called it a consulting fee so that we don't, yeah, because it, it, yeah, yeah. it's against it's, all real estate. Yes, yeah, so it's like, we just paid them a consulting fee. They didn't negotiate the lease. They just brought the person there. Mm -hmm. And um, we got to pay a bunch of people and we never would have had the tenant mix that we had had we tried to go fill that, right? I mean, it's a big deal to pick your neighbors. Yeah, it is, it is, <laughs> it is. And then the final piece was we said, we're gonna, we're gonna use this development to find other people who are interested in development and try to train them up in future developments so they can learn how to be, redevelop their own community. And so those were kind of the six core principles that guided us. We got, in, we got a healthcare tenant to actually move their headquarters from OU Health, which is kind of our, it's the big you know, healthcare center within the city. And they, they're a 110 year old company. They moved their headquarters to our space. They signed a lease, 10 year lease. They debt serviced all of our, so I'm like so excited. I tell our team like, this is the easiest debt I'll ever get. And so I start calling banks and we called over 25 banks and they wouldn't even give us a term sheet. And what most of them said, almost all of them said, well, there's no comp. Some of them said, we just don't lend money to that side of town. And so oh, wow. um, what was fascinating for me was here it was, this is, this is literally two miles due east of the Tower Theater, which is where we started our career. We had no tenant, we had no money, and we were able to borrow 100% of what we needed to get in. Here we have 40% of our costs covered because the city's investing money. Yeah, yeah. We got a 110 year old clinic. And so finally we got a bank that said, hey, if you get a guarantor that's richer than you and they guarantee the debt, we'll lend you the money to do this. And so we have a buddy, he's got the single largest single malt scotch collection in the country. So right now I think it's $7 million of single malt scotch. Please tell me he used that as collateral. <laughs> well, I was like, dude, who, who else wouldn't you want to guarantee? Like if you have to foreclose on that, like how great would that be, right? So, um, so we send over his personal financials. He said, I'm in, man, I care what you guys are doing. And the bank called me back and they said, we've decided he's not rich enough. And at that moment, it hit me that if uh, three guys who all we do is develop, we have a 110-year-old clinic and we have a guarantor who has more single malt scotch than we need in debt and we can't borrow money on the east side. How do you think a 20-year-old black kid is gonna get any money to yeah. be able to do anything, right? And yeah. so there's always this uh, statement where people will look at communities that are underserved and be like, well, you know, it doesn't look very nice. They probably don't care about their community, right? It's not our problem mm -hmm. to solve. It's, mm -hmm. it's their problem, right? But they're real headwinds. And, and in reality, they can't get any of the things yeah. that we have access to, right? So that became a personal challenge for us. And really we ended up, uh, the, last, the last bank that I could think of was I called Jill Castillo, who's C, uh, CEO and president at Citizens Bank of Edmond. And so she's, for context, she's a, a suburban banker, but a female owned bank. And I basically just, vomited everything. I said, pivot's not gonna make it. This project's not gonna land. We're gonna lose the healthcare clinic. They're gonna move somewhere else. And uh, she said, I'm in, let's do this. And so she ended up lending us the money to go do that project. And so it became something of a, of a kind of a, just an important piece for us to realize is that part of the redevelopment that we're doing and the joyous disruption we're doing is actually creating comparables so that when someone in the black community wants to finally go do a building, 
you can't say, well, there's been no development over here in 35 years. Mm-hmm. You say, well, there was, and it's been successful. And yeah, so I now, yeah, 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 now I have to give you money. So um, when 80% of middle-class wealth is derived through home ownership, and we purposefully didn't allow a group of people because of the color of their skin to borrow money uh, to buy homes for two generations, there there's cycles that are gonna you know gonna yeah. be uh, created, and so that's the system. And so you know we talk about it, it's like the system is the thing that gets that, that people have a hard time seeing. And so the only time typically we can actually see the system is by entering into relationships with one another, and then seeing what those systems are like. So when I go with JB, who's become a friend of mine, and we fly together, he almost every time he goes through TSA, he gets strip searched. And so like. I have I film him. I go through first, and then I film him because it happens every time. And I've seen, you know, he had a little, he had a little uh, lightning bolt necklace, and they are trying to take that away from him because they said he might use it as a weapon on a plane. And just like just those microaggressions that they go through every day, mm-hmm. that I, you know, I get pissed if someone pulls off in front of me, right? Like yeah, that's yeah. that's my frustration yeah. for the day, right? So they have taught me more about patience and kindness and goodness and the way that we should see the world that I never would have been able to see had I not been uh, welcomed by their community. It's an amazing story. And, you know, the amount of stressors that you've expressed, right, where you've got um, your own personal viability on the line, you've got reputation on the line, you've got, you know, you've got a family, you know, all of those kinds of things, those things matter too, Yeah. but you're sort of on a mission at the same time. And those stressors take a toll or there's a price to pay or whatever with some of those stressors. So talk to us through some of the way that you, just mindset that you use, practices that you use to really kind of work through some of the, those challenging times, right? You mentioned journaling. What are some of the other techniques or maybe some of the feelings that you've had that you've had to process through and what, what, do, you, what do you do to kind of overcome? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the weird thing about real estate development and and other entrepreneurs will understand this, you're basically battling against everyone because everyone said, well, this building's empty because it doesn't have any worth, right? And you're going in, you're saying, no, it does have worth and it will be an asset to the community and we, we, will, we will redevelop it. So you're, you're fighting the money, you're fighting, you know, you've got some tenants that want to come in and some that don't. And so you feel like you're having to fight them to get them in and you're having to, you're, you're in this constant. And so it, development in general can really become about you very quickly. Um, and I don't typically, I can make a lot of things about me pretty quick. And so uh, one of the things that was intentional just from a system standpoint was we said, we're not going to build a development company around an individual. And so, you know, I told the team in one meeting, I said, I think the quickest way for us to like launch our company, we've since kind of reorganized and we're doing some bigger projects. But as we're talking about this, I said, the the best way to like kind of relaunch this is to make it about me. Mm -hmm. Um, But the best way to make sure that it fails in in spectacular fashion is to make it about me. And Mm so we're gonna try to build something that's bigger than any of us. So that's like from a system standpoint, that's one. You know, there's a lot of things that, whether it's running or whether it's, you know, I journal and I read, um, I try to read a lot. I read a lot of fiction. Actually, I've read East of Eden five times in the last six months. Wow. And so uh, if there's any East of Eden fans out there, I would love to just talk to you about it. Uh, <laughs> best book ever written. Noted. But then, you know, it helps too to have a family that doesn't think you're that big of a deal. Like the, mm-hmm. the reality of like, I get caught up in things that I think are really massive and important. And we just developed a, a dog park bar called Barquet and it's down by the river and it's like a restaurant dog park. And uh, I was pulling my family in for the first time and it, it was done. And 
one of my kids was like, finally, dad, you've done something good. Like, like of all of the things that we've done, they're like, and why? Cause there's pets there, right? Like, you know, the barometer for them is like, you know, dad, you've yeah. like my, my oldest son was like, why do you just do like breweries and music venues and bars? Like, that's so dumb. So dumb. It, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh. So, ha but having that perspective is really helpful because we really can make what we're doing seem like it's the most important thing in the world. And I think a lot of that comes out of insecurity and really understanding our place mm -hmm. and how these things work in, um, in two generations. I heard someone say this and I've never forgotten it. Um, we tend to get rat, like caught up in legacy and how, we're, how we're, you know, how, what legacy are we gonna leave, right? But really what that means is how, at its, at its worst level, it means how can we control the narrative so people remember us the way that we want and if they're not going to remember me the way that I want, then I'm not interested in dealing with that. And the freedom, if we flip it to say, if our life is just an offering to others, take it or leave it, but like it becomes so uh, less controlling in terms of how people take us. So yeah, we're gonna screw up. Yeah, we're gonna mess up. Yeah, people are gonna misunderstand our motives, our intentions. But if we're free of being caught up in that legacy trap, I think it allows us to actually do some meaningful things and it not impact who we are at, at our very core. Mm. Uh, it's incredible to hear. I'd say you articulate that. It was a really well said. I think there are battles that entrepreneurs really go through. And, and one of the things that I've picked up, the signal that I've picked up is you've gotten really good at selling bringing people together. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about like, what are some of the ways that you've, what's the negotiation you've had to pull that you're like, I had to get pretty creative on that one. Well, I feel like, uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, probably my best quality is that I don't stop, you know, uh -huh. uh, that we're, we're pretty much just keep going. And so I think, you know, to be an entrepreneur, you have to just, you know, I always tell people, if you tell me, no, it doesn't hurt my feelings. Right. Yeah. So, you know, one is just having a framework of not everyone is going to get, and I haven't always had this. And so, um, you know, we were doing the East side stuff and we couldn't get any support. I had a friend call me and he said, I think you just care too much about black people. And those things, like, instead of me being able to process that well, it made me be like, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah, like, I'm, 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 I'm going to take, take everybody down, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm going to take down, I'm going to rat everybody out who said, we don't lend money on this side of town. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to war, right? And what you realize is that nothing is going to get changed through that, right? Yeah, it and, um, no, and it doesn't no help my heart either, right? Like, I always say, I want my kids to have soft hearts yeah. um, that can feel. And so that does not allow me to feel. And so when we're free of feeling like we have to convince someone, and again, it's like, we're actually just... My dad, we lived off support as a family. So he was in the Christian ministry. And so he was always asking people to support him based on a very long-term investment. Very long-term, like <laughs> you know, internal yeah, investment. Yeah, internal investment, right? Yeah. And so like, I believe that what we are doing is financially solid. I believe that what we're doing, even though there are hiccups and you know, who would have expected COVID, like there's, thing, yeah. there's things that happen. We're dedicated to actually make these projects work, right? And so when I'm asking people for money, I'm pretty free of being like, I'm actually trying to put your money to work so that it will make money for you. Mm -hmm. And so that does not feel like I even have to sell, right? It just yeah. feels like I just have to be really honest with, with who I am. And there are times that I can go into sell mode, but I think one of the good kind of maybe pulls that my team has given me is we see people who sell and um, at some point 
you never know when they're not selling. And I've realized that I don't want to become that person. Yeah. I don't want to always be selling. And so I get really excited and my enthusiasm will bleed out and you will hear it. But it's hopefully I'm not trying to sell you a bag of goods, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, and hopefully it's I'm being honest. Yeah, and, and I'm not, I, you know, I had someone tell me, it's like, man, I realize that I basically, it's probably not okay that I tell all these white lies to get a deal done. And it's not that I'm like the truth police or anything like that, but there is a sense of saying it's, it's a value we do care about is trying to be honest when we're communicating with people because mm-hmm. uh, it allows us to be ourselves, right? You don't have to worry about any of this yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, what did I say to this person versus what did I say to that person? So I don't know if I'm answering your question. But you those, you those totally are. Because I mean, like, if you think about it, I mean, being good at selling, I think selling is about helping people make the connection. Yeah. And if you've got this vision, it's like, man, the model, the industry, the system can't see the vision. Your selling is like, I can help you make the connection. That's great. I can help yeah. somebody see the vision, right? And I think that those are the big moments. That's when people say yes. Like if you talk about, if you think about selling, it's all of the, it's the 13 to 50 yeses you got along the way to right. get the deal signed, yeah. right? Yep. And there are those temptations, right? And I, I think it's really powerful to face the temptation to tell half truths, to tell lies, to say it's true because I said it this way, right. but it's really kind of not true right. if you really knew all the context. And that's why material facts and things like that matter in real estate. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think at the end of the day, right, there there is a good tension that I think that is really powerful where like you can face the temptation to, I, I'm gonna say this, and it, but if I do, it's outside of my value system. Hmm. And it takes even more creativity to see somebody, to help them make the connection and still have held fast to your values. And that doesn't mean you have to be perfect, right? Right. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, you're like, well, I I told a half truth there and I'm like, the next time I'm not gonna do that, right? I'm gonna stay away from that. Oh, I could have said this and that would have been different. And I think that those growth moments are, are really powerful, but I would say that entrepreneurs mostly, their traction really comes when they're able to help people make the connection with something that's brand new. No, that's good. And I think there's some people that what I've realized is that they can't make the connection or they've chosen not to make the connection or they're too smart to make the connection mm. at this point in time. And so, you know, us as a development company are have different things that we need at different points in our life cycle. Mm-hmm. And so being gracious enough to say, you know, I've exhausted the everything that I can think of, there is also as a freedom of saying, maybe this isn't the right time for them, right? Yeah. They're not the only person in the world that I can go pitch. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna go find someone else that would buy into this. Yeah, and that's um, knowing when to push and when to yeah, hold back. Absolutely. Because you could circle back with that person with something else, right? Oh, and, and that's what we always tell people. We're always, you know, hey, just because you say no today doesn't, I'm gonna be back. I'm pretty resilient. Like we'll come back to you in 12 months and see if that's the deal that works for you. And if not, yeah. I'll be back in 24 months. Yeah. And so uh, we want to keep doing these kind of things, which means we need to have a very long-term vision in mind. I love it. Well, tell us about what's next. You know, what's on the horizon for you and for Pivot Project? Yeah. So you know, really during COVID, we did a, some kind of recalibrating, and we said that we'd we'd really dabbled in the project size of five to $15 million. And uh, those were really fun projects. But what was happening was we have all these resources and they get caught up because they're all complicated, right? And so, you know, you find three oil and gas tanks that are buried underground and that delays your project a year and you've got this happen and that happen. And so we decided is we're going to reaffirm who we are. We're gonna spend a year working on our values and our purpose. Um, But then what we're gonna do is we're gonna chase some larger projects to give us 
bandwidth. And so what those larger projects do is they give us the ability to have basically 18 to 24 months of operational income to go do the things that we want to do. And so we've got really five or six really fun projects. We've got a hotel. It's a $30 million hotel on the east side of Oklahoma City, right across from East Point. It'll be uh, 51% minority owned. And um, we've got Monarch, which are uh, two sisters from the east side. They're actually going to partner with another development company to develop it. Sandino's involved with it. We've got several people who have ownership in the real estate. And so that will be a really fun project. It's a really complicated project. You can't really do market rate deals there yet. There's been 30 years, 40 years of disinvestment. And so we've got so many layers of capital and we're really waiting on one final piece to be able to pull the trigger and go. So it'll be fun. We've got a project in Tulsa that's hotel, multifamily, garage. And so there's a lot of just bigger stuff. It's all fun. What I think we're really committed to right now is building a team. And so we just brought on a brokerage company and uh, what we decided was that we would be intentional about how we hire. So joyous disruption doesn't mean that we have to be out in your face. It just means we're gonna hire differently. And so we've we've been really, uh, there's not many female developers, mm-hmm. there's not many female brokers, there's not many minority uh, developers or brokers. And so we've, we've just said, we're gonna be intentional about trying to do those things. Um, I think it makes us a far more interesting uh, company mm-hmm. because we have a bunch of people who see the world differently than yeah, every other development good. group. And so that makes it a lot of fun. But yeah, we're, we're in a really fun stage right now. And uh, I think over the next two to three years, what's interesting, we, we alluded to this, when we had all the talent leave in the 80s, all of the development within Oklahoma City has really been done by individuals, really talented individuals who have put together some incredible projects. And so this building that we're in, I mean, we just walk down and show yeah, some incredible yeah. projects, right? But none of them have been development companies, like companies that are actually built out to do this. And so in even naming, you know, us being pivot, it's like, we're, we're being intentional about when people drive by, oh, that's, a, that's something pivot did, right? That's not Wanzer or Dodson or whoever. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to build a team that we think can go do more and hopefully, we can do more, you know, in Oklahoma and, and outside of Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been incredible to see, you know, what you guys have done. There's always these really complimentary whispers, right? Conversations that you have at, at an event or something like that about the work that you guys are doing. And I think that the community that we're here in, the I mean, even the company that I, you know, the, that I work for, right? There's a lot of people who are really proud of the work that, that you guys are doing and want you to keep doing it. And I really have just enjoyed the conversation. And um, I have some rapid fire questions that I'd like to ask you. Okay. All right. First one. Are you a morning person or a night owl? Morning. Morning. So my next question is, what's the most important or most unique part of your morning routine? It's the five minutes that I stand doing the pour over, waiting for the water to boil, what have I pulled up on my phone or what am I spending my time thinking about in those five minutes? Yeah. So I usually go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the world ends on Monday. How are you going to spend this next weekend? Telling people things I should have told them that I hadn't and uh, spending my time with my family. That's good. What's your favorite restaurant in OKC? So I have to cheat for the people. I go to Elemental. For dinner, I'll go to Frida's. Yeah. For burgers, Flycatcher. Flycatcher. I haven't tried that one. Okay. All right. I'm going to go. Who is your greatest business inspiration? Two people that I'd really like to meet in this city are Gene Rainbolt, Mr. Rainbolt, Mm -hmm. and Sam Presti. Okay. The way that they have uh, 
Mr. Rainbow has, as a progressive individual who has opened up branches in every small town in Oklahoma. And so his understanding how to um, care for communities and have um, a viewpoint that at times could be deemed as incompatible with those communities and do it in the way that he has is incredibly impressive. You know, Sam Presti has built a team using processes to show people that he cares, which is a really hard thing to do. What's interesting is I have found more lessons in my life through fictional characters that I read. And so it's easy for me to be like, well, this would be a fictional character that has taught me a lot, or this would be a fictional character. And so I have a lot of friends who like totally geek out on all the leadership books and I'm, I'm probably, I would be better for it if I read them, but <laughs> I would, you know, rather read Grapes of Wrath or read uh, Cormac McCarthy or read something and try to, yeah, 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 so powerful. Uh, All right. What has been your most satisfying moment in development? When we did the East Point project, we were so proud of it and we lost out on some local awards, which really hurt because we were so like, we'd never felt like we had put together something better than that. And, uh, we ended up winning the International Award of Excellence, which only uh, the Devon Tower and um, Gathering Place had won. And it felt like we we didn't need the validation, but sometimes you feel like you're doing something that's really important and no one in your own community realizes, or they, they realize it, but like they don't understand it right. And uh, then to have someone from the outside come in and yeah. say, hey, this matters, this is unique, this is cool. I think it gave all of our team just a sense of like, oh, we weren't crazy. Cause we started to feel that way, right? Mm -hmm. You're like, are we, are we, like, are we missing it? Like, do we not get it? And so that was, uh, that was definitely it. Most satisfying, that's good. All right, how do you define success? I think it's, it's hard for me to make it personal. It's more of pivot and its entities are created or are there to promote human flourishing. And so human flourishing means it's for our stakeholders, but also our shareholders. And so it's how do we create a community that is for eight-year-olds and 80-year-olds? Mm -hmm. And if we do that, then I think we will have achieved success regardless of kind of the financial implications of that. Well, I, I got to say, Jonathan, it was super incredible to sit down with you, you know, from having beers at the Pony Boy to hanging out with you, having this conversation. I have a lot of respect for what you guys, uh, you, you, you guys do respect you as a man and I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much. And you didn't ask for this, but what Heartland has done by moving to the urban core mm. and investing in communities is pretty transformative. And so you guys are very well beloved in the city and appreciate you guys having me on. That's awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Entrepreneur Studio Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. For links to the resources mentioned in today's episode, or for more information on how we can help you run and grow a better business, see the show notes of this episode. We'll see you again next time for another episode with an inspiring entrepreneur who has been in your shoes.